0: Hello and welcome to the 2022 Dublin Literary Award Shortlist podcast presented as part of International Literature Festival Dublin. My name is Sean Hewitt and my name is Jessica Trainer.
1: In this special podcast series we'll explore each novel in detail as we chat exclusively to the authors and translators shortlisted for the award the winner of which will be announced on the 23rd of May as part of International Literature Festival Dublin, which, like the award, is sponsored by Dublin City Council.
0: Nominated by libraries around the world, the award is the world's most valuable annual prize for a single work of fiction in English, or translated into English, worth 100,000 euros to the winner or winners.
1: In today's episode, we're looking at Nopamink, The Cure for White Ladies, by Leanne Betasmusay-Simpson, nominated by Ottawa Public Library in Canada.
0: It has been a long time now since Nanatik participated in the sugar-making ceremony by getting pierced. The piercings usually take place in the very first part of spring, when things are starting to melt and even the bush is sloppy. The ceremony lasts a full month at least, although now it's sometimes even longer with all the stopping and starting of climate change. It was a useful ceremony for Ninatig when they were young. It required focus and commitment. It required a luxurious reliance on Ninatig's friends and neighbours who were not pierced but were supporters. They made sure Ninatig stayed hydrated by taking less water out of the soil. They caressed Nenatig's skin during the drilling. They whispered beautiful things when the sun made the sap flow hard. By midsummer, the wounds were mostly healed and Nenatig would be fully leafed and enjoying the humidity with their comrades. To be honest, Nenatig missed the ceremony in the flow of the year but no one tapped in the Marquess Burnham Park because of the tree cops though Ninatic always knew it was on Lucy's mind. And by most accounts, Nenatig's responsibilities in the world had shifted. The piercing had prepared them for their work now, the long hours, the travel, the pushing of the shopping cart until their branches ached. So this is such a fascinating piece, Sean. Like I I was immediately transported while reading it into this really strange world where we have this kind of amalgam of nature and people, so that the kind of populated world of people and the natural world and the two of them colliding together.
1: Yeah, and in some ways it's about um, a struggle to connect with a a sense of spirituality or ritual or ceremony in the natural world. So you get the sense of these voices speaking in the aftermath of something that's happened that you never are really told Mm -hmm. about. Um, And the reason I I, uh, think this extract is really interesting is because you get that sense of, The various ways in which these ceremonies have been disrupted whether it's by climate change or whether it's by you know um, the tree cops and and there's all the way through the book there is a sense of uh, environmentalists uh, usually white environmentalists settler environmentalists trying to help but doing it in all the wrong ways uh, and, and disrupting things further um, and having these kind of messy or, or clumsy ways of trying to um, protect the natural world um, that stop people from connecting with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so the book is told in a really experimental way. Uh, there are a number of uh, main characters, seven of them, um, so, Jess, as you read there, uh, you'll see at the top of the page, uh, Ninatig. Um, and that's your only indication that this section is about that character. And Ninatig is the maple tree. Uh, but we also have an old woman, a giant, a caribou. Um, and they're all talking and, and bringing stories to uh, um, who is the central character who is lying through the book uh, frozen in ice. And these characters variously come and tell them their stories and kind of relate back happenings from this kind of liminal um, urban settler uh, world. Yeah, it's fascinating.
0: Yeah, it's that kind of liminality and the, the, the sense of kind of bleeding through from the various different modes that I found really interesting, even in the short extract I read. The fact that we went from this kind of ceremonial uh, piercing through to shopping trolleys and mm. carts. And um, there's a lovely sense of the two worlds, maybe not completely peacefully, but coexisting in a really fascinating way, whereby you don't have the mythic kind of siphoned off or hived off somewhere distant from day-to-day life in the modern world
1: yeah there are these characters through the book who you, you get the sense of uh, whether well, they're struggling to find ways to connect uh, in, in meaningful ways with the natural world because they're in these situations you know they'll be kind of sitting in a car park uh, you know by the shopping trolleys and trying to listen to the birds or trying to remember certain connections or, or the sounds of water and um, So you get the sense that um, it is on this interface um, and it's a struggle all all the time for these characters to feel at home or rooted in the place. Um, Perhaps there's that sense of of dispossession uh, running through it. Um, But you see the way that kind of proliferates into all of their relations, not only with with other people, but um, with you know, shopping and grocery stores and also the books that they read. One interesting thing about this book and that I can definitely recommend is that uh, Leanne has uh, recorded uh, a section of it as an album and you can kind of listen to it uh, on Spotify or wherever Uh, and it's a really nice way to get into the book because some parts of it are almost prose poetry uh, Mm -hmm. within the structure of the novel itself. Um, Mm -hmm. So that is one... One thing I did when I was reading it is kind of walk around Dublin, kind of listening to the songs and and feeling kind of immersed in it in a way.
0: Mm. I mean, it does feel quite like David Diop's book, like an important um, reclamation as well Mm. of a kind of a a mythos and a place in a deep time. Mm. Um, And I think even that the subtitle speaks for that, the cure for white ladies, Mm. you know, there is a sense of a kind of a, a reclaiming this very essential myth um, perhaps from, from some interlopers. Uh, did that kind of come through the book?
1: Yeah, so the book is actually written in response to another book from 1852 by Susanna Moody, um, who's an English-Canadian settler who wrote this memoir called Roughing It in the Bush. Um And I think uh, that Nopamingas means in the bush. So it's kind of this uh, playful pushing against of of settler narratives. Um, One thing that's really interesting about this book is that it's purposefully uh, doesn't give itself away. It doesn't give you, um, as a non-indigenous reader, um, clear access points to this mythos. It's not in the business of explaining to you. Uh, So in that way, it makes you work for it and and that estranging effect that it has on you as a reader is really interesting and I, d- I don't think that it's a, a common thing. Um, And to read this book is to find yourself really having to consciously engage with a culture that is not your own, uh, and it's not just handed to you. Um, So it makes you work for it, uh, which I like.
0: Yeah, that sounds fantastic. And I'm really excited to hear Leanne speak about the book.
1: So here is my conversation with Leanne Batasmusay-Simpson about her novel, Nopamink, The Cure for White Ladies. Hi, Leanne. Uh, It's really good to, to be on the line with you. Um, I've spent the past 2 weeks submerged in the world of Nopamink, and I'm really looking forward to talking to you about it. I'm full of questions uh, about this book. Um I wanted to start off with the title uh and I believe there's a, a sort of reference in the title that perhaps um, the Dubliners might not uh, get. Um, the title responds, if I'm right, to Susanna Moody's 1852 memoir, Roughing It in the Bush. Um, and when I was looking at that book, um, I hadn't heard of it before, though I see it was written by an English woman um, and was very popular at the time. I wonder, is it a book that is still popular at the time? And perhaps you can tell us a little bit about your choice to respond to it uh, in Nopamink?
2: Yeah, for sure. So Susanna Moody is a very celebrated author in Canadian literature um, because she was the first woman um, in Canada to, to write a novel. And so her work um, is canonical in, in Canadian literature. It's celebrated. Um, writers like Carol Shields and Margaret Atwood have used her work as a, as a jumping off point point. And it's something that um, in the city that I live in, in Peterborough, Ontario, which is where in the area that Susanna Moody was writing, the book is a really important part of um, our collective history. And so I wanted to reference that book in the title and use it as a jumping off point because... <laughs> Um, Susanna Moody's depiction of of my people, of Mississauga Anishinaabek people, is quite racist in the book. Um, And I wanted to, in this book, sort of break that open and show these um, funny, dynamic, generous, beautiful Anishinaabe worlds in the present that writers like Susanna Moody and settlers like Susanna Moody might have missed at the time. And so that's sort of the first layer of it. Nopaming in my language means in the bush. And in this project, I was thinking of, of the bush, of the forest as a gathering site of many different forms of life, of different forms of trees, of plants, of insects, of animals, and of different nations of humans. And so I wanted to... Um, also sort of gestures towards this idea of of life as this interdependent network.
1: I, that really comes across in the structure of the book. And it's something that I was fascinated about when I was reading it. Um, there are a couple of layers uh, to this structure. And I, I'm sure we can spend a long time talking about just the form of the book in itself. Um, one thing I, I noticed was that, in a really productive way, it unsettles readers that are unfamiliar with um, the cultural references that that you make in the book. Um, and it was a book that I really enjoyed working with, or working towards, perhaps, in the way uh, that I was asked to read it and, and encounter it. Um, it has a number of, of characters. Um, and perhaps you can tell us a little bit more about those, but. Um, There's the caribou, the maple tree, uh, the giants, uh, two humans, and then also this uh, central main character, and they all have... Interlinked stories, and they all uh, the the narrative moves between each of these characters. So, was that a, a conscious choice in in terms of pulling um, a, a new sort of literary form from a cultural paradigm that was close to to you? Uh, how how did it work um, in terms of developing the structure?
2: I set out to write something in a longer form, and I quickly came up against the structure of the novel, which is a very, I think, cherished genre that has within it embedded in it sort of a whole bunch of assumptions and, and theorizations from a Western standpoint. And I found that it really shut down my creativity. I found it very difficult to work within. And so very early on in the process, I gave myself permission or the freedom, I think, to create something that was based on Anishinaabe oral storytelling. And there's lots of different cultures that have those sort of beautiful oral traditions that I've always been very much in love with. And so I wanted to create something that um, followed sort of those tenets, um, those kind of poetics. And I wanted something that really reflected... The process of storytelling and that in my culture requires something different from the audience it requires a deeper level of engagement it requires a a sort of co-meaning making so there's lots of layers to our stories Um, there's lots of coding in our stories Um, i think storytellers want to have enough layers and enough code that Um, all of our readers can sort of find themselves and find something inside the story but that finding requires maybe a deeper level of engagement and so Mm. I knew that it was a pretty big risk in terms of in terms of the field of literature and and what gets what gets read and what gets celebrated but it it seemed like a very very important project to me artistically and intellectually Mm. and I it, it caused me to think differently about my readers. Um, I think I had to trust that readers would engage, Mm. or that enough readers Mm. would engage, that they would be able to sit through sort of uncomfort, that they would put the energy into deciphering some of the Anishinaabe Moen. And I wanted to make sure that if they gave me that effort and that labor, that they were also rewarded for that.
1: Well, it's certainly a really rewarding book. And one thing that I particularly enjoyed reading it is uh, looking beyond the text itself as well. I found myself on a sort of journey to to research and um, I was listening to your music as well. And um, and I, in fact, I'd, I'd quite like to ask you about the, the music um, theory of ice because you, you were saying uh, about the novel itself and one thing that that really strikes a reader i think is is the way in which um there's so much space in this book as well both physically on the page um but also in terms of uh the way that it builds relations um between um all different um kindred forms of of life and one one way i found really uh interesting to to get into the book was to be walking around Dublin, listening to to your album, Theory of Ice, and then coming back to the book. And it felt in that way that um, I was able to build a soundscape for the book or, or able to, to hear the stories in a new way. So I wonder if you can talk about that. Um, the shifts in form that happen sometimes in the book so there there are poems in in the book as well, and then also your extrapolation perhaps of of some of these ideas into music or or did the music come first or you know what is the ecosystem of of the different forms that you work across
2: I like that you've called it an ecosystem because that's very much how i I uh picture it I think I go back to that word nopaming and think of things as a gathering site and so i wanted a number of different iterations of the project across different mediums across different artistic mediums and across different formations as a as a way of enhancing um the project as a knowledge a site of knowledge generation a site of mm-hmm. knowledge production and mm-hmm. so the um there's two albums actually associated with this the no Piming sessions which is a series of readings over electronica that was composed by my sister, Ansley Simpson. And there's a short film attached with that project. And then Theory of Ice, which is a full length album, um, that takes that midsection of poetry and opening and brings that into conversation with different musicians and different sounds. And so that project was interesting because when you're working with poetry and then bringing it into conversation with music, it necessarily changes, um, poetics into lyrics. Um, so there's a a different economy, I think in that writing, but also the, the different, um, instruments and the different musicians, um, bring, Another layering of, of narrative and sound, and so the idea was that we would we would be able to perform this album live and provide sort of another layer to this gathering site. I wanted the projects to all be standalone, so I wanted mm-hmm. them to sort of be relatives or or kin in this um, this ecosystem. But I wanted audiences to be able to come to the record and have it be a complete sort of standalone artistic project with mm-hmm. this series of, of four short films.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting. Um, I'm just thinking now about the the oral storytelling tradition, uh, which might not be one-on-one, uh, might be a, a collective thing, and and the novel or the reading process is often for us. Uh, a, a quite a solitary activity you know we we build it in our minds uh, usually in silence on our own uh, and then the opportunity to bring instrumentation and other people into the kind of building of this novel perhaps that's a way of getting in different ways uh, into the, the way that this novel can can live. One thing that you made me think of then, when um, you were talking about performance or, or or bringing the novel into into rooms with many people, was the importance in this book of ceremony. Um, It struck me to be a a really important recurring theme in this book, the way in which some ceremony is is disrupted uh, or or changed, particularly climate change. And I was reading your article, and you wrote that since indigenous knowledge is spiritual in nature, many indigenous peoples rely on the ceremonies passed down to them from their ancestors as sources of knowledge, guidance, and support. It made me think um, about different ways of creating or passing down knowledge uh, in this book and also in the different art forms that you work across and this space for spiritual knowledge um, which could be dismissed in other cultures or in other sort of scientific hierarchies Um, and I wonder if you could talk about the the place of ceremony and spiritual knowledge and if you found literature a more useful place for, for working with these kind of spiritual knowledges um, or whether you, you came up against them uh, in some ways.
2: Ceremony for Indigenous people is something that's very, very intimate and it's something that's that's very personal. And it's also something that through this process of, of colonization and colonialism that has been very targeted um, by by residential schools by um the indian act to make some of of this these cultural practices and these spiritual practices illegal for for large swaths of time in canada and so there's also a lot of trauma and there's also a lot of um, pain that can be associated um, with the practicing of our of our ceremonies and at the same time, I think um, connecting to something larger than oneself, whether that's the land, whether that's um, a community, um, or whether that's in the spiritual realm, is something that is uh, pretty life-sustaining for a lot of people. So I think the characters in Nopuming are finding ways to connect anyway, in spite of all of this disruption, in spite of of cities, in spite of um, all kinds of sorts of barriers to this, but they're finding ways of um, connecting to something larger than themselves. And I I felt like that was a really important thing to say right now, Um, given the state I think of the world globally, with all of the different sort of the pandemics of, of COVID nineteen, of, of climate change, of anti blackness, of of war, of all of the the things that are happening right now.
1: Mm. I loved in in the novel, um, although they were quite heartbreaking in some ways, um, the the ways in which the characters sort out connections uh, in the face of of um, a world that is is blocking off those connections uh, to the natural world I I remember um, one of the characters I think sorry if I'm misremembering this but um, lowering a device down to hear water um, it's stuck in my head now and perhaps I've misremembered it but this sense of trying to recover um, a a close connection um, with with the world uh, around him.
2: There's definitely um, some, some hard work going on with the characters to find the, to find these connections, those deep relationships to all other living things that we're sharing time and space with um, are important. And in the novel, I think they're so important that they become those, that relationality, that ecosystem becomes mm. the setting
1: mm. of the book. Yeah. Mm. Um, I loved the playful way that um the characters uh and and you yourself as an author are, are playing with um this kind of new ecologies or, or new ways of of knowing in the book and I say new um because there are a number of of times in which asin and ninatig um read um, books like uh, Peter Volaben's The Hidden Life of Trees, or uh, I think another one was Biological Exuberance, and kind of have these playful uh, ways in which they discard them or kind of try and go along with them. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the ways in which these characters interact with these apparently well-meaning but Misguided, uh, sometimes visions of of ecology, and why you wanted to include those uh, those other books within this book.
2: I think the intervention I wanted to make sort of roots back to to Susanna Moody, in a sense, that I wanted to demonstrate that Anishinaabe people, that Indigenous people, are in the present that we're international peoples, that we're thinking peoples, and that we're engaging with the bodies of knowledge and the world around us. Because so oftentimes I think the stereotype or the way that we're represented in the mainstream is that we're sort of lost and searching for this, this connection, um, which has elements of truth in it, but we're also intelligent and we're also engaged And we're also thinking critically and have been for for thousands of years about the world around us in a global sense. So I wanted that to to come through. I wanted that idea um, that we're thinking peoples and that we engage with work, that we critique, that we have critical thought, um, to sort of be present in the book um, and sort of question why that idea that Indigenous people Reading books and thinking is so novel,
1: yeah. Mm, yeah, yeah. There's a sense of aftermath, perhaps, in this book—a um, sense that something has has happened to to disrupt um, the the ecosystem or the or the relationality of of uh, the people in the book and 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 also the other. Um, I believe I've heard you refer to them as. Um, kind of kindred nations of, of uh, plants and animals. It's also a very funny book. Um, was it important to you that it, that it do take that um, sense of aftermath but not dwell on the, did you want it to be a, a funny uh, book? Was that, was that something that was kind of in your mind to begin with?
2: There's been a fantastic um, resurgence of Indigenous writing and Indigenous literature in Canada uh, over the past 10 years, um, in part because of, of Canada Reckoning um, through reconciliation with, with its colonial past and, and present. And one of the things that has happened is that there are a lot of books that are placing the trauma of colonialism front and center. And while I think that, that work is important, Um, In this book, I wanted to push the tragedy to the side a little bit. And I wanted to show a different side of the Indigenous community and build an Indigenous world where there was joy, where there was humour, where things were complicated, and where things were taking place in the present. And so that was done um, very deliberately with the, the narrator Mashkawaje being frozen in the ice and relying on these other seven main characters to sort of tell the story. Um, I wanted to have a story where it wasn't tragic, that nothing really bad happens while there's heartbreaking parts. Um, there's also lots of, of laughter. And that is just a simple reflection of, of the community that I'm a part of. I wanted to reflect sort of an Anishinaabe reality. Um, yeah, we have a lot of, of trauma and a lot of violence around us. And we have a lot of joy. And we have a lot of connection. And there's a lot of love in our communities. And I wanted to sort of use Nopaming th- to create that refuge because that's to me what the forest is—it's a refuge from from some of that violence. So, I very deliberately set out to push that sort of trauma to the side, but to also acknowledge that it exists. Um, but to see to sort of explore and to study what also exists alongside that.
1: Mm. It's such a it's such a great structure. When I was reading it, there's there's a, an Irish novel that I'm not sure if uh, if uh you know called crane killer um which means graveyard clay or, or um and it's a mid-century novel by martino kine and um it, in that novel uh it's set in the in the grave in the graves and occasionally people kind of hop into a new grave and are buried and then they start telling news from the outside world and there's a sense of disconnection from the violence of, of war and things like that going on above and instead you get these reports coming down um, it's a very different novel to yours but uh, that sense of having um, and again Ireland having an oral um, an oral literature um, traditionally there's a sense of storytelling and, and feedback uh, and the second a new person comes in they bring a new vision of the world or new bits of information um, Speaking of, uh, I wonder if, um, because this uh, prize is, uh, is sponsored um, through libraries, and um, this book was, was uh, submitted by Ottawa uh, Public Library, I think, um, I wonder if you could just close by um, reflecting on the importance of libraries, or um, you know, do you have special memories of, of libraries in your time as, as a writer or as a storyteller or artist?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think of libraries as gathering sites, as, as houses of knowledge in the same way that I, I would relate to the forest. And I think that um, libraries have always been a place of refuge for me. Sometimes I've written books there, I've taken children there, um, I've gone to engage um in study, engage in the world around me through these sort of quiet gathering spots that are um, often in, in busy sections of urban communities and even in, in um, tiny rooms in rural communities. So I think um, libraries are um, a really beautiful f- part of, of Canadian life, the fabric of Canadian life. And I'm grateful to libraries not just as a reader, but also as a writer, for the support that I I think they they gave me as a writer by providing office space, but also um, providing places to read and and connect with um, with audiences.
1: Yeah, yeah, great. I mean, this is a, a book that is feels in some way like the tip of the iceberg to me of so much research and and knowledge um, and. I would really encourage readers to, to go and, and seek out your scholarship as well. And there are there are great um, talks that you've given on, on YouTube as well that I was uh, looking at and and to listen to the music and to kind of engage in the ecology of, of this work. It's it's a really rich uh, book. Uh, thank you very much for, for writing it and taking the time to, to talk to me at the end.
2: Miigwech for your deep engagement with the work and for your, your patience. And I really appreciate your... Uh... Your perspectives in this, this conversation. It's been
0: wonderful. Thank you for listening and be sure to tune in to the other episodes as we count down to
1: the twenty twenty-two Dublin Literary Award winner announcement. You can read this year's shortlisted titles from public libraries around Ireland, or borrow them as ebooks and e-audiobooks on the Free Borrow Box app.
0: Plus, you can enter to win your own copies of the six shortlisted books by entering the giveaway running now through the 17th of May on
1: ILF Dublin's social media channels. Wherever you're listening from, we invite you to join us for the online award ceremony on Monday the 23rd of May. You can book your free ticket
0: at www.ilfdublin.com and browse the other fantastic events in this year's International Literature Festival Dublin programme.